Hello everyone and welcome to the Athlete Tribe podcast. I'm your host Lee Eldridge. In this podcast we'll be talking to elite coaches, practitioners, athletes and high achievers about how to improve performance. We'll be covering topics such as training, improving your sport, work and overall life. I hope you enjoy the show today. Please feel free to leave a review. Hey guys, today we're joined by Richard Gerber. Hi Richard, pleasure to meet you. I came across Richard's work on LinkedIn in one of their learning modules, and he was talking about mental toughness. Huge area of, of conversation, even pre-COVID. And today we're going to have a little bit of talk about that. Hi, Richard. I hope you're well and enjoying the, the February weather. Not <laughs> Well, hi, Lee. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've had our moments, haven't we? It doesn't matter how old you get. And I'm in my 50s now. I still do snow angels in the snow. The problem is I don't have any children any longer because they've grown up and left home to, to join me and make snowmen. But there you go. <laughs> so mental toughness, a huge topic. And start off with, I think, a real good point to start with. What do you see as the difference between the term mental toughness and mental resilience? Sometimes they get put together. Should they be put together or do they have their own place? I, you know, I, I think the first thing to say is, and it's really important, we don't overcomplicate things. And actually, they have a huge amount of, of commonality. Um, I think that in some ways, mental resilience is an awful lot to do with dealing just with raw adversity, whereas mental toughness is almost taking that on a stage and being able to galvanize a level of self-belief, which actually allows you to see real potential challenges and issues that you're dealing with in a really constructive and positive way you know so if you think about mental toughness which really came out of sports psychology and sports in in the 1980s that was very much about galvanizing athletes self-belief and and giving them the confidence not only to knuckle down and to get through really tough training regimes and to do the really tough tough stuff, but also actually to help them galvanize the belief in themselves when they entered the kind of bear pit of competition, that they actually believed in themselves enough to know that they could they could win, they could overcome challenge. Um, and I think so there's there's a kind of mix there, one leads into the other, but I think it's really important that we remember that resilience is a very important part of the rounded part of what it means to have mental toughness. Okay. And obviously, with what's going on, people's mental toughness and resilience is being pushed to the, to the max. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is why you're <laughs> right. We, we've been talking about mental toughness for a very long time, I think. And, and also a lot of people, you know, I come from an education background. I've worked a little bit in, in elite sports, too, and, and in business. And, you know, we, we've been looking at for a long time, I think, really, since the, the kind of the, the, the renaissance, or the real kind of um, interest in this stems from the global financial crisis in 2007, 2008, when I think organizations thought that they were structurally and systemically rigorously um, designed enough to overcome challenge. What they forgot in all of that was they built systems and structures. What they'd forgotten was the crucial part, and that was the human response and reflex within those organizations. And actually, that was clearly the Achilles heel that, you know, organizations had all these beautiful charts and systems, but actually when it came to the crunch, it's about people. And I think that was a really important learning point. So around 2007, 2008, organizations all started to look at the question, okay, 
how can we how can we develop our people so that we're more capable, not just of surviving in challenging times, but constantly projecting forwards and looking positively and optimistically about what happens next? And I think to an extent, you know, more than ever, who knew we were going to end up in the place we've been in for the last year? But in some ways, that is going to be the defining factor of the people and organization who come through this challenge eventually in the best state. Those people that haven't just got their heads down and thought, let's just survive, but actually the people who have looked beyond survival, looked beyond resilience and said, yeah, okay, but what are we learning from this time? What are we gaining that's positive and constructive? What can we take forward into the new era that actually will help us launch bigger and better when uh, circumstances allow? Just to touch on that, because you mentioned meeting Obama and how... <laughs> can, can I just say, Lee, thank you so much for dropping that in for me, because uh, I would have done at some point, but thank you for doing that for me. Well, actually, it was, you know, paraphrasing, but he came across and said that most of his problems weren't technical. Most of them were, were human-based. And I suppose from the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, we can take stock from that. Now with what's going on, it's not necessarily a technical issue. It's, it, we're not sure from that point of view. How do you think as a human that we can kind of move forward from, from what's going on? I think, I think there are a number of things. The first thing is I think we have to take a step back and understand why we see the world we, we, the way we do and why so many of us struggle in times of uncertainty and particularly in periods like the financial crisis and even more amplified now because in many ways we're educated and raised to seek out certainty right in our lives that's almost from childhood it's about securing your life seeking out certainty growing up doing the right thing in the right way doing what we're told in the right way um securing going through education securing a, a good job a job that you then make yourself indispensable in a job that creates security around you which then the rewards become things like mortgages and pensions and holidays and and you know a secure life at whatever level that is right and that's we're, we're taught from that very early age that it's all about locking down certainty and the truth is we've known for a very long time way before the financial crisis and certainly way before the um the covid pandemic that life, the world is turning faster and faster. And actually locking down certainty is not only becoming less easy, it's almost unrealistic and not the way the world is gonna be in the future. So in many ways, what we have to stop doing is regarding that lack of certainty as a failure or something to worry and be deeply concerned about. Now that's much easier to say than it is to, to feel and do. But the point is what we have to start doing is, is reframing the situations we're in. And actually that means we first of all have to trust our instincts more. You know, one of the things I've been talking about a lot to people over the last year is if I'd said to you a year ago that we are all going to live through what we've lived through and that actually that could go on for 18 months, two years, people would have gone into meltdown, right? Because they simply wouldn't have believed they'd had the capacity to not just cope, but survive in any positive way through that process. Yet, the vast majority of people have. So the first thing is we have to learn actually from the incredible um, 
the incredible way so many of us have navigated what we've dealt with over the last year and realize what we're capable of, realize that we're capable of living in times of uncertainty and, and change. And I suppose the trick in all of that is to stop just trying to protect what you have, because when you do that, you stop looking around, you know, you, meerkat style, you stop kind of exploring. In many ways, the, the irony is we only ever look at new things and explore opportunities when things stop working for us. And actually what we need to do, and this is, I suppose, from my background as, a, as an educator, is we need to think more like a five-year-old, right? Because five-year-old kids are dealing with change every single minute of every day of their lives. And actually they embrace, they don't just survive it, they love it, right? And actually that's because of their deep sense of curiosity. And I think what's really, really important is we don't allow the complacency of security to get in the way. And we all need to be more conscious of the fact we all need to be deeply curious. We need to keep our heads up all of the time so that we don't miss opportunities to learn and develop and, and change. And the more curious we become, the more in control of process we feel, the more constructive it feels and the less like loss it feels like. Um, and, and slowly, you know, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying this is kind of rainbows and unicorns, but actually what starts to happen is you start to see opportunities and the constructive value of the world we live in. You know, so for me, for example, I've spent the last 15 years of my life working mainly as a professional speaker, right? And I got back from a trip to Australia at the end of February and just watched, like many people did, their diaries skittle like dominoes. I mean, just, you know, people phoning up, emailing, we're really sorry, this isn't going to happen, this isn't going to happen. And you sit there and go into that paralysis, right? That kind of, oh my God, what's going to happen now? And then it's, a, it's all about clawing your way to the curiosity phase. You could just sit there and be a victim and go, that's it. I'm buggered. The world's come to an end. Um, I, I don't know what I'm going to do now. Um, or you go, this is interesting. So how could I use digital technology, for example, to try and transfer some of those skills and, and the things that I do? How can I utilize other opportunities? What have I learned? And I suppose the very long-winded end to this answer, Lee, is on a very personal level, one of the things that's been really important for me coming out of this and I'm going to hold on to and feel more confident about is rather than traveling to Australia for one day for one event, I might now consider seeing if I could do it remotely from home for my own, for my own physical health as yeah. much as the bank balance of the clients that are paying for me to go out there, right? So there's hopefully always something constructive we can develop from that process if we look at it the right way. Yeah, to, to agree, I think for me, it's been a huge opportunity to be able to speak to individuals like yourself that would be maybe on a plane or preparing for speeches, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's, it's given everybody a huge opportunity and also to a point that more people have had more time due to lack of commitments or cancellations. So that's been a huge positive from my side. Mm. But you talked about reframing and you talked about perspective. And is there anything that you can give or any things that we should be thinking about to help with that process? in terms of questioning, etc. Yeah, and look, I mean, you know, Martin Seligman will be known to many people as many people see him as the founding father of, of positive psychology. And whilst I think sadly, a lot of policy, uh, you know, like so many things, positive psychology has been turned into a bad trend by people that saw it and saw an opportunity to promote it in a badly informed way. Um, and, you know, so even I, I, I've been skeptical at times when I hear people talking about positivity and brilliance and all of this kind of stuff. And 
But I remember during lockdown, um, returning to, to some of Seligman's work, and, and I'm a very simple person. People who've taken time to share this with us will have already picked that up, right? But one of the things I found were Seligman's six questions um, about how really you start to reframe a, a sense of, of control over, over things. And, and they're beautifully simple, beautifully elegant questions. And, and just to paraphrase them for people that I use them all the time now, and I'll just go through them, right? So if you're dealing with a challenge, if you're dealing with something you weren't expecting, that's th thrown you off kilter, a problem, whatever it might be at whatever level, you know, go through these questions, and they're not necessarily going to find you some kind of moment of, of uh, epiphany answer, but they're about just feeling more in control of what you're dealing with. So the first question is, what is the worst thing that could happen right now, given the situation I'm in, right? Just, and then it's about saying, okay, so what could I do to try and prevent that worst thing from happening? Already, you can see you're just starting to shape the conversation in a way that allows you to feel more constructive. The next thing is, so what would be the very best thing that could happen as a result of the situation that I've, I'm faced with right now? And what one thing could I do that might help develop that very best thing um, to happen. And then the final one, which of course, by now you're getting to a point where you're beginning to say, okay, the curiosity is sparking, you know, that childhood five-year-old curiosity. Now we're going to end with the kind of realism question, which is what is the most likely thing that's going to happen in the situation I'm in? And what can I do to deal with the most likely thing that's going to happen in this situation? Now, of course, what you've been through there is disaster scenario, um, you know, daydream scenario, and you drill down into a reality. But just by using those six questions, for me, it's almost meditative, because actually what it does is, first of all, it helps you regain perspective. Because, of course, one of the big problems when you're dealing with crisis and problems is we lose perspective really quickly and we feel like victims really quickly. And so it's, it's about regaining perspective and regaining a sense of proactivity. Because you've just touched there on maybe that what's happened is that people have felt that they've lost purpose, you know, and, and that's a that's a huge area in terms and a massive driver for, for motivation. And you've touched on a couple of things that leaders have gone or are at the moment, this idea of assumption of incompetence. And, you know, you, you've recommended that shift into assumptions of excellence. And how do you feel that is developing now in this world where, you know, bosses and leaders are not seeing their staff face to face. They're not seeing what they're doing. It's more of a trust based point of view. How do you see that moving? I think, you know what, there are two, there are two really important points you raised there. The first is purpose. And the second is this thing about the, the assumption of excellence. And I think there is a link, right? The first thing that I think is really important to learn from the last year or so. And again, this has very much come to me when I reflect on my personal journey over that year. Um, you know, there have been times where I have had profound challenge in terms of earning income and keeping my job going. And, and I think that's true for an awful lot of people. And it would be wrong of me to sit here in some sort of fake ivory tower and go actually look at me it's all because it hasn't right I'm 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 stressed most of the time at the moment but what's been really interesting for me is very early on 
I decided I wanted to at least have a sense of purpose. I wanted to feel that I was of value. Um, you know, my wife is a, a school principal, so I, she's been going off every day, whether it's lockdown or not lockdown, to do a really profound job for her community. And actually, for me, it's been really hard some days to see her go off knowing she's doing something meaningful. My daughter's a teacher. She does the same thing, right? Yet I'm stuck in this little white box, um, just extolling nonsense to people either by word or, or, you know, or camera. And I think what's been really important for me is to have a sense of purpose. So I've taken on a lot of opportunities to do stuff pro bono, just stuff I believe in. And um, whether it's recording videos uh, for kids, whether it's um, agreeing to work with various charitable organizations, you know, and at least going to bed at night feeling exhausted because I've done something of value, I've felt of purpose. And I think that feeling is so incredibly important for everybody, whether we're living through a pandemic or whether you're going to work every day in an office building and doing the same job you've done day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And I think it's really, really important for leaders and managers to remember that actually most people do not feel valued by what they earn, right? It doesn't matter. And it's really interesting. I've interviewed for various of my books, uber successful people, right? People like um, Richard Branson and Jay-Z, for example. And what's really interesting about those people is that to them, success isn't quantifiable in money. And actually they're still totally dissatisfied because all they ever talk about are the things they haven't achieved. And those things are never about money. They're about shifting society, right? And doing things of value and doing things of good. And I think the same is true for multi-squillionaires or normal people. The truth is what gives us the greatest buzz when we come home from a day at work is to believe that we've been of value. We've been of value to our colleagues. We've been of value to our place of work and our organization, and we've meant something to them. And I think that's really where the assumption of incompetence versus the assumption of excellence comes from, right? Because most traditional organizations are predicated and designed and built and have been for generations on industrial thinking, right? The, the, the idea of Taylorism, Frederick Wilmslow Taylor, who came up with this cycle of perfect industrial thinking, right? That you, if you focus on productivity, you increase profit. If you increase profit, you invest it in efficiency. If you focus on efficiency, you increase productivity and you, so you create this endless cycle, right? And what that leads to is an uber environment of top-down management, because yeah. what you assume and to an extent, rightly, certainly in the industrial age, is people hate their jobs, but do it because they need to earn money to feed their kids, right? And the jobs are mundane and they're repetitive and they're boring. And so everything is actually about incentivizing people just to be efficient. What we're living in now is a very different age where actually if, if a company just focuses on efficiency, they're gonna be dead in five to 10 years max, right? Um, you just look at tech businesses and the ones that have failed are the ones that have never innovated. Um, and, and that's true of any sector in any field. Now, in order to create that real dynamic of innovation, of development, of loyalty, 
from the people you've recruit, spent a fortune recruiting, training, developing, managing. You have to A, make sure they feel that they are genuinely valued and of purpose. And in order to do that, rather than making them prove that they're good and competent at their job, you swing shift it and you say, you know what, you're here. You got through the recruitment process. You're hired because we think you're exceptional. And that means we're going to actually put you in the spotlight, which is challenging. We're going to let you now show us what you're capable of. Um, and we'll provide everything you need to do that. Now, What's really interesting, of course, is that feels countercultural in a traditional sense, because most people go, whoa, most managers go, whoa, most leaders, whoa. But actually, the truth is, if people feel trusted and valued, they will exceed expectations far more often than underperforming. And by the way, that doesn't mean you don't still manage people who underperform, but you only manage people who underperform and you let those that are flying fly rather than making everybody prove they can cross hurdles at, at the same point. And that there is real evidence in global mega organizations that that culture makes a significant difference. And I think if we can get more of that, and by the way, I think to an extent, it's really interesting when you look at some of the data coming through through lockdown, a lot of traditionally run organizations were terrified about their employees working from home. How are we going to manage them? How are we going to make sure they do their work? How are we going to make sure they're productive? What's really interesting is a lot of people working from home haven't kept conventional hours, but actually productivity has increased in most organizations, particularly where people are trusted, because they are getting, and they do feel valued, they do feel significant, but the most important thing is they feel trusted. And because they feel trusted, they're prepared to go the extra mile. Amazing. And I think we're definitely going to see, and I don't like the term personally, but the new norm and how, and how that's going to change the landscape of business and, and in future. Rich, thanks for your time today. Where can we find more about you and the great stuff that you do for, for everybody? Well, first of all, Lee, thanks for, for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. So yeah, they can find out more about me from my website, which is simply richardgerver.com or um, social media, particularly Twitter, which again is just, I told people I was simple, at Richard Gerver. And the one thing that I make it my absolute mission to do is to connect back with anyone who connects with me. So please, please connect. I'd love to have conversations and learn from you. Perfect. Thanks again for your time and enjoy pleasure. the rest of the day. You too. That's it for this episode with myself, Lee Eldridge, the human performance coach from the Athlete Tribe, and Richard. We want to thank Richard for his time again. I hope you found it truly interesting regarding mental toughness, reframing, and perspectives. As always, love to hear from you guys. Please leave reviews, comments, click and subscribe as always. Catch up next time on the Athlete Tribe podcast.